We've got three readings this morning, and uh, the first of those is from Genesis chapter 4. So if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 4, it's the first book of the Bible, if you've got a, a physical Bible in front of you, or you can follow the reading on the screen behind me. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. This is God's words. We're going to turn now to the first book of the New Testament. If you want to turn to Matthew Chapter 5, I'm just going to read a few verses uh, from there. Verses 21 and 22. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, that means fool, uh, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Amen. There are some things which are especially difficult to preach on. And we all come to church with our complex histories and our difficulties and our problems. And it's not unlikely that some of you will have faced some of the issues that we're going to be looking at today. But despite the difficulty that I've uh, had preparing this week, I've been encouraged and strengthened by the fact that the, church, the, the Bible tackles every issue. It doesn't gloss over 
the difficulties that we face in this life. Far from it. God, in his wisdom, has equipped us to answer whatever life throws at us. Even in the trials and the difficulties that we face in this fallen world, we have hope beyond this life. And uh, in one of our readings, uh, we quoted the Lord Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, quoting the commandment. And he said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. This is the sixth commandment. And for many of us, uh, we could be fooled into thinking that the sixth commandment is there so we can feel good about ourselves for having managed to keep one of them. God maybe gave us nine impossible commandments and a bonus one. Most of us would be able to say, oh, at least I've kept this one. But as Jesus makes it so clear there when he explains the demands of this command, far from it being an easy command to keep, it's actually a reminder of how our hearts are often hateful and murderous places. Jealousy, anger, and resentment are all there. So as we look at life and the taking of life this morning, I want us to look at these things carefully and in a biblical way. So firstly, how does this command fit in with our theology of body and soul? How does this command fit in with our theology of body and soul? Now, the importance of taking another life is all to see with, uh, is all to do with how we see God, with how we see ourselves and how we see other people. The reason God takes murder so seriously is because it's tearing down his image. We quoted this a few weeks ago, but this is from Genesis chapter 9. Surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. It's clear we don't have the right to take another person's life. It's not our place to do so. God forbids it. And so some have accused God of murder. How can God tell us what to do when he doesn't even keep to these rules himself? And it's not so much that he's above the law, but that he's not even in a comparable situation. As Job says in the book of Job, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it makes us uncomfortable uh, that we uh, see a God in the Bible who is able to take life away. But who are we to question the author of life? The potter can choose to do as he wishes with the clay. The clay is not involved in the creative process. And so God is able to do these things without us uh, questioning it. And though uh, God commands us not to take life of other people, we know that it happens. It only took uh, the second generation for it to happen. And we, we looked at that in Genesis 4, didn't we? Of Cain and his brother Abel. And Cain, in his jealousy at God's favor, 
towards his little brother, led him to a field and killed him there. But the issue is, we don't see ourselves as likable to this situation. We see ourselves as removed from this situation. As this, uh, We see ourselves as different. So why are we dealing with such an issue? Which leads us to our second point. How do we find ourselves breaking this commandment? We imagine murder to be a meticulous and calculated event, like in the movies. But in reality, if you asked uh, most murderers hours before the act happened, they would say, I'm not capable of such a thing. Uh, sins such as anger and rage and jealousy and greed play a part in most murders. They're usually uh, not premeditated, but the result of a loss of temper. But this morning is not about, about us feeling good about ourselves for not killing someone. That's not what I want us to do this morning. Jesus takes us to the heart of the issue, doesn't he? You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. You see, we have wanted people gone. We have wanted them out of our lives. We have wanted them to disappear. Murder and hatred stems from our understanding of who God is, who we are, and who other people are. As sinful people, we mistakenly see ourselves as God. We see ourselves as God. So when we don't get our way, we can lash out. If we're not able to control a certain situation or control a certain person, if someone says something or does something to ruin our reputation, or when we desire someone or something more than anything else in the world, and that uh, whenever anyone else, a mere human, proves to be an obstacle to your path, they can often be the object of our wrath. They can be collateral damage in a, one of our explosions of rage. And we're all susceptible to these moments of anger. No one thinks that the world is a better place with anger and murderous thoughts, and yet we so often find ourselves angrily cursing under, someone, uh, under our breath about someone's very existence. But we also have to look at Murders in a different category. And two of these are, are very difficult uh, topics to look at. And these are abortion and euthanasia, one of which is legal and one of which will likely become legal in some of our lifetimes. And my aim isn't to look at these issues, again, as a way of making ourselves feel better about being more self-righteous than other people and to point a finger of condemnation at those who have. As Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. It's important for us to understand why God's plan for us as people, as embodied people, why his plan for us to flourish in this life does not include abortion and euthanasia. And acceptance of those things comes as a result of not seeing people in God's image. 
throughout history, uh, the world has been guilty of recategorizing humans to fit in with their selfish purposes. It happened with slaves in Africa. It happened to the Jews in, in 1930s and 1940s Europe. And we read our history books and we think, we've moved on from this. We're so much better than they were. But unborn babies today are seen as less than human. There were 200,000 abortions in England and Wales in 2020. It's, it's heartbreaking. The highest since records began. How does this happen? Well, it comes from a place where the world sees these babies as a burden, a problem, an inconvenience. And there is inconsistency here. A society are able to, to flick a switch in their minds uh, as when something is a baby and when something is a bunch of cells. Because if a woman loses her child in a car crash, it's, it's rightly seen as a tragedy. And whereas if the same woman were to go into a clinic and make the decision to take the baby's life, then it's not only seen, just seen as socially acceptable, but it's seen as empowering. Do you see the difference here? The, the Bible teaches that life starts before a baby takes its first breath. When we read David's words in uh, Psalm 139, it shows God's knowledge and care for the unborn. Let me read to you some of those words. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even if the darkness, uh, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. For darkness is as light to you, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God cares for these babies. He cares for them. And you may say, well, what about those facing pregnancy in difficult situations, in difficult circumstances? We don't express sympathy or show care to these mothers by destroying another life. That's not how we show care. We don't show care by angrily protesting at abortion clinics. That's not how we show care. Yes, we can write to MPs. Yes, we can sign petitions. But this needs to be done alongside showing mercy and care to those who are facing this battle. It's by showing grace and mercy and forgiveness to those who may have already done something like this before, who have had or paid for abortions. It's not the unforgivable sin. And when we, when we say it is, and when we act as if it is, we undermine the power of Christ's forgiveness at the cross. There is forgiveness to be found at the cross. 
We must graciously love and care for those who are fearing the future. For those who, who don't know how they can support a child. They haven't put themselves in this situation. They don't know how to behave. They don't know how to act. They don't know what to do. The church must be a refuge for these people. For those who feel totally ill-equipped, unprepared, and filled with dread as they find out they're carrying a child. The church should be the first place they come to, not the place they run from. Another difficult issue that we must face with, uh, we must be faced with, is care at the end of life. We must consider the issue of, of euthanasia. Now, an important point to, to clarify here is the difference between uh, withdrawing treatment and forcibly ending life. Now, there are nuances here that I can't go into. Um, we should never seek to prematurely end life. To actively hasten death is, is wrong. And to passively withhold treatment uh, can also be wrong. But to allow death to occur naturally in a, in a terminally ill person is not necessarily wrong. But anyone facing these situations needs to pray to God for wisdom. Uh, euthanasia comes from the Greek uh, euthanatos, which means easy death. And it's done in order to end a patient's suffering, usually through administering a lethal dose of drugs. Now, under British law, all forms of assisted suicide or euthanasia are illegal, regardless of whether a patient wants to happen or not. And helping someone end their life can result in uh, 14 years in prison to, to a lifetime in prison. However, I saw recent research this week that revealed that many people in this country think a terminally ill patient should be able to end their own lives. It should not only be legal, but assisted by the NHS. Of the people asked, 76% of the general population in England and Wales thought terminally ill people should be given freedom and protection to take the choice. Now, there are, I think there's eight countries in the world where this is currently legal, and the Netherlands became the first country to legalize euthanasia in, in 2002, but only for patients who were considered to be suffering unbearable pain with no help of a cure. But the current Dutch government wants to bring in a law that would legalize assisted suicide for people who feel they've completed life, not just for those who are ill, but those who have completed life. Now, how far are we in this nation from seeing such laws come in? I don't know. The question is, how has it come to this? Why is there such an apathy to life? Uh, due to better healthcare in this country, uh, lots of people see um, past the age of 80, don't they? The, the life expectancy has, has grown and grown uh, over the past uh, decades. But with people uh, regularly reaching these older ages come debilitating illnesses and diseases. And the chances of being diagnosed with, with dementia are as high as one in three for those who are uh, over the age of 80. 
and there's other debilitating illnesses and diseases too. And there's worries as well, isn't there? There's worries about how expensive care is or whether your family will be able to look after you. And therefore, it's maybe um, unsurprising that we uh, find out that once a fortnight, a different British family makes the decision to uh, fly to Switzerland in order to end their lives legally. Such is the pressure uh, found on older people and such is the disregard for human life in society. People are taking life and death into their own hands. And this is what uh, Johnny Erickson Tarda, uh, a paraplegic Christian, you might remember a children's talk we did a few months ago. Um, she uh, became paralyzed from the neck down when she was a teenager. Uh, this is what she had to say about the issue. If our culture can't fix it, cure it, medicate it, sedate it, or surgically remove it, then please just get rid of it because we sure can't live with it. That is the attitude, isn't it, today? Death is no longer a part of everyday life. Whereas in years gone by, death would have been, uh, would have taken place in the home, wouldn't it? But now it's almost exclusively being dealt with by healthcare professionals. Most people, my, myself included, have never seen a dead body. And we don't, we don't want to deal with the thought of death or suffering or pain. And that possibly comes with the innate knowledge that we all have, that this is unnatural, that it's a product of the fall, that it shouldn't happen this way. But the way that society deals with it is to, to remove it altogether, to not talk about death and to ignore it as, as much as we possibly can. And as people grow older and grow frailer and grow more ill, they feel more unneeded and more unwanted. But whatever stage of life we are at, we have a duty from God, don't we? He calls for us not only to keep going when we are aging and suffering, but also for those of us who are younger to honor and care for those who are older, to care for our parents and grandparents. Paul says to Timothy, doesn't he? These are strong words. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Those in these sorts of situations with long-term illness, in old age, they, they don't want to be a burden. They hate to feel as if they are worsening someone else's quality of life. We all want dignity. We all want to be able to do things ourselves, to, to feed and wash ourselves, to, to be independent. And yet, as we grow older, our bodies don't work like they used to. We can show love to people in how we help them in these things. We can show acts of mercy and show patience and love and care for them. It's an honor, isn't it? And a help to those who have done the same to us throughout our lives. And another factor towards the willingness to die is, is that people become what they do. If I can't exercise, if I can't walk the dog, if I can't play with my grandchildren, if I can't cook, if I can't live independently, then my life is not worth living. But we must remember that we are not what we do. We're people made in the image of God. And you see how all of these issues, these difficult issues, come from a place of uh, where we see God, 
where we see ourselves and where we see other people. Rejection of a, a creator God leads to a worldview where euthanasia is accepted. If life is devoid of any real meaning and finishes as soon as we die, then why would we prolong the, the process of suffering? If life is only for now, for enjoyment and for pleasure, and a, a debilitating illness has put an end to that, well, there's nothing here for me. And if we receive our dignity and our worth from other people, and people are no longer seeing me in this way, then why would I want to be here? But as believers, our worth and our value is not found in what people think of us, or what we can do, or what we have. It's in being image bearers of God. Listen to this quote. It's by a man called G.K. Chesterton uh, from about 100 years ago. He says, people are equal in the same way as pennies are equal. Some are bright, some are dim, some are worn smooth, others sharp and fresh, but all equal in value. For each penny bears the image of the sovereign. Each person bears the image of the king. Isn't that a great quote? shows us we must be pro-life, whether it's at the beginning of life, end of life, and everything in between. Life is a gift from God, isn't it? And can I say, uh, there are some of you here who may have been uh, tempted or have tried in the past to take your own lives. I'm sorry if this has happened to any of you. And sadly, uh, many people feel this way. And uh, it's not a situation that's not talked about in the Bible, Elijah in the Old Testament reached a point in his life where he felt as if he couldn't go on. He felt hopeless. And he was a man who knew the power of prayer. His prayers had stopped all the rain in Israel. It raised the dead to life. It had provided food. And now he was praying a very different prayer. As he said, it's enough. Now, Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah knew that God could take away his life. But instead of death, God, through an angel, helped Elijah by giving him food and drink and sleep, strengthening him. Now, that's not to say when you're having a horrendous day and you're in the darkness and you can't see a way out, the, the answer is food, drink and sleep. That is not what I'm saying. But when you feel this same way, when you think the world will be a better place without me, when you think... I'm only a burden. My suffering can end now if I just go. Remember that you are cared for by a creator God. Hear these comforting words from Psalm 34. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. If you feel helpless, and if, there, if you feel as if there's no way out of your trouble, then please talk to one of us. Talk to someone from church that you know well, or, or talk to myself or one of the elders, even if it seems like the, the hardest thing to do. As Christian brothers and sisters, we will not always have the right words to say, but we will be there to listen, even in the darkness. And we know that we have a saviour who knows and walks with you through the despair you're in. Regardless of, of whichever of these issues that you're 
you're going through. So thirdly, let us look finally at how, how do we positively live in light of these things today? How do we positively live in light of these things today? I want to look back and I want to look forward. So firstly, let's look back. If we have sat here this morning under the weight of guilt and shame for something that we have done in the past, whether that's been something that we've acted upon or that we've done in our hearts, remember there is grace for all these things. Whether it's out of anger or out of hopelessness that you have made, decisions that you have made, there is grace to be found in the Lord Jesus. There is grace for those with a short fuse. There is grace for the careless driver. There is grace for the gang member. There is grace for those who have aborted babies. There is grace for those who have got rid of someone that they didn't want to live anymore. There is grace for those who have wanted uh, to, uh, uh, who have wanted to see a, a sick relative pass away. There is grace for the suffering saint who wants to end things now. All of these massively different situations, but all in need of the same gentle saviour. Now, a huge chunk of the Bible that we read today is, is written by two men that were guilty of murder, David and Paul. And we read some of David's words early, didn't we, from Psalm 51. This is what he said, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise, for you do, do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. David, like you and I, needed forgiveness at the cross. How can we be forgiven? By coming to the cross. We are healed and made right only because of Christ's willingness to suffer the death penalty on our behalf. And as Jesus was brutally murdered on the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Yes, he was forgiving the men that were at that very moment carrying out his execution and that were taunting him. But he's also in that moment forgiving us and anyone else here this morning who has put their trust in him. There's no sin too serious or too shameful that Jesus says, I can't pay for that. That's too much. He paid for it all. And in dying for your sins, he gives you life. He rose again, showing that death is not the end for his beloved children. So that's looking back and looking forward. We must pursue peace. We must be pro-life in everything that we do. Let's be those who are patient to how others react to us. Let's be merciful when people wrong us. Let's be silent when people accuse us of wrong. Let's be encouraging to those who are downhearted. 
in short, we should be like Jesus, shouldn't we? And it should affect every aspect of our lives, how we live as husbands and wives and as children, how we relate to our friends at school, how we talk to our colleagues and our employees and our employers, how we drive our cars, how we talk to strangers in the streets. All of these things are being pro-life. They say living life to the full. I, I, I hate that phrase, living life to the full. It's a cliche and people usually only use it for when they want to go on holiday or when they want to have memorable nights out with their friends. But it's actually something that Jesus offers, so I shouldn't hate it as much as I do. And he actually offers uh, life to the full. This is what he says. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. What does that mean? What does it mean when Jesus says, I came to give life to the full? Well, you see it in everything that he did. He offered sight to the blind. He offered a home to the lost. And he offered reassurance to the doubtful. He offered hope to the hopeless. And he offered forgiveness to the guilty. And satisfaction to the hungry. And healing for the broken. And comfort to the grieving. And he offers life to the dead. The life Jesus gives is eternal life. And we focus too much about the length of eternal life. And it's eternal, not just because it lasts forever, that's true, but also because of how full and wonderful it is. As I close, let me read these words from Revelation 7. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne, that's Jesus, will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the hope that we have as believers today.